At the best of times, healthcare can prove challenging to deliver. While demand continues to steadily increase, resourcing may not be able to move at the same pace. And that is where clinical innovation comes in. Looking at things from a different angle, investing in new technology, or supporting the workforce to work at their fullest scope, these projects are the heart and soul of the theme, Solving the Puzzle. Hello, everyone. Um, Sorry, we're just a bit messy over there, making a lot of noise, but thank you for having us. So this morning, um, today, this afternoon, we're hoping to talk a little bit about our um, virtual clinic um, called the Voice Child Development Program. Um, And we want to talk about how virtual collaboration is delivering health equity for Queensland's children. Um, Before we begin, we'd like to pay respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we walk work, talk and live, and also acknowledge and pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, elders past, present and future. So, just to begin, so this came from an idea um, similar to most innovative ideas, um, and it was really to um, help bridge a gap, which was to provide developmental specialist services um, to areas throughout Queensland that weren't receiving them. Um, or where services were limited. And as with any collaboration or innovation, um, it takes uh, a lot of partnership, a lot of conversation with a lot of others, um, so it's rarely done in isolation. So we just wanted to begin by acknowledging our partners. Um, Originally we began as Virtual Child Development Service, so ECDS. Um, That was before we partnered with our voiced partners. Um, Clinical Excellence Queensland, the voiced adult voice program. Um, the Queensland Child and New Clinical Network. So this was founded from our child development sub-network group um, where there were some you know, like-minded people that created an idea. Um, and our HHS support. So we have, have, want to acknowledge the Torres and Cape HHS, the Southwest HHS, the Northwest HHS and CHQ as well. So why? Why do this? Just a little snapshot about child development for those that don't know. Um, So 26% of Queensland children are identified as vulnerable at school entry, so one in four. Um, And Queensland has the second highest rate of vulnerability throughout Australia. Um, Diagnostic need increases at school age, so around five to ten years of age, at a stage when often our um, early intervention and our community um, children's services are starting to rein back. Um, Specialist child development services are not available in all um, rural and remote communities throughout the state, so it is um, an inequitable access to care. And for those kiddies in rural remote areas who do need the care, um, the pathway is often quite disjointed. Um, The travel burden is huge and it's convoluted. And for many families, they'll often choose not to have care um, rather than be separated from families because we're not an acute health area. Um, And this vulnerability increases for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families. Um, So almost half of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children throughout Queensland are identified as vulnerable on school entry. So it's double um, the population vulnerability. Um, And we know that 30% of Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people live in Queensland, so quite a large cohort in our state. 
um, and 42 per cent of Queensland's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, population are children, with two to thir um, uh, sorry, two thirds living remotely. So basically, the take-home is we have a large cohort, and they do not live in our metro areas. Um, so how are we servicing, and how are we taking care? Um, so this, the Voice or ECDS, began about two and a half years ago, before COVID, before we had a virtual need um, per se, um, and really that was about seeking collaboration. So rural partners seeking. Um, their metro teams, how do we do this, how can you help us? Um, they wanted knowledge to be shared and they wanted it to be clinically relevant to their cohorts, so not necessarily learning from metro experts to help us help our clients in our local community. So it needed to be tailored, it wasn't sort of a one-stop shop. Um, and they really wanted to prevent their children and families from having to travel. Um, and so it used to be called ECDS, and so the ECDS child development clinicians um, worked collaboratively with on-the-ground allied health, community health teams um, to actively manage cases, face-to-face um, -face cases. Um, and I guess the other piece of the history is just um, last year we rebranded to align with our voiced um, colleagues, and that was really about getting the virtual model um, of care a little bit more promoted um, and seamless across the health trajectory rather than it just being little pockets of virtual care. So I think um, we have diabetes, which you will all know about from the last show showcase, um, but I think they've also expanded to maternity um, and other health areas as well. Um, so what is it? Um, I guess this is our visual of what it is. Um, it's really the acute services or our um, metro services, quaternary services, joining with the state, wherever that may be. Um, and we were just talking earlier about really it's not even just the health services with communities that are quite rural and remote. It's about linking with schools and the GP and, um, you know, the, the family support worker, um, health workers. We've had everybody. Um, and including those people as part of the team, so proactively having them as part of clinical care. So a little bit different to telehealth. It's not so much popping into just a consult, it's actually working with the community. Um, and it's face-to-face -face with the family. And I guess the goal is to improve health equity, um, to, make uh, to allow families not to travel so far. And of course, we want it to feel good for the families and be helpful, so consumer outcomes is also um, important. So a snapshot of outcomes thus far, we've got a little bit of this, but I guess just some of the stats which were pretty astounding is our FTA rate remains even after two and a half years at almost zero. Um, and we know that for specialist child development services, or probably we hear any specialist service, that's quite unusual. Um, but we have, we were saying we have done it from cars and from out back in the farm, or um, we've had children sick and doing it from home. So it does have the capacity to be quite um, versatile, yeah, responsive. So I'm not sure that it's just that they're coming because we're amazing. Um, but also it's a model that can respond quite well. Um, we've had a really large cohort um, of families identify, who identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, um, which was lovely. It was a bit of our test, like is this a model that will work um, with different communities? Um, and I guess our experience has been yes. It's about who's on the other side, who's part of their team on the ground um, is important. And in the Torres and Cape, that was much higher. Um, it's flexible and responsive. It, um, for South West, I think it completely got rid of their long wait breaches for a, in a six-month pilot. Um, 
Yeah, we talk a little bit about clinician value, but it's highly valued by clinicians, not just in the rural remote, but actually the metro teams. It's been extremely rewarding. Um, families are saying it's helpful or extremely helpful. Um, and all children thus far are developmentally understood in two or less um, virtual appointments, which again is quite unusual. Um, and I think one of the components of that is that in rural um, communities, often these children and families have done a lot before they seek specialist care, so they're coming with a lot of collateral and um, information. So it makes that specialist component really brief and fast. Um, increased access to intervention, yeah, so Amanda will talk a little bit about that. Um, we did a study of um, capacity building across um, this, the metro team as well as the um, rural teams, and that was done with a, a myriad of disciplines. So just, um, yeah, that's a spread of the people that we've had involved. And the outcomes were just very stock standard. So that's the metro team and that's the rural remote teams and just very highly valued from both ends and just some qualitative um, information. So I think the rural teams just really love to be a part of something. It was a different feel than just being told or given expertise. They really enjoyed the um, experience of being a part of a broader team, um, the capacity building component, learning from others, being able to bring complex cases and being listened to by the local team, opportunity for participation. And again, the Metro team um, talked about the application of evidence-based practice in really remote or um, you know, unique settings, because I guess in the metro space we get to do it in kind of a best practice um, experience, but being able to apply that on the hop or in communities that are much more resource um, restraint, um, yeah, it gets you to test your skill. Hand over okay. to you. Thank you. All right, so we did do a um, small-scale project uh, it was small scale, it was only 12 families, but we wanted to get some consumer feedback. Uh, so these families were all seen in 2020, so that gave them time to access further services so we could look at how helpful we'd been around that and also reflect on the experience that they'd had uh, with ECDS now voiced. Um, the families came from Torres and Cape, Southwest and Northwest HHSs. Um, and we obviously we just wanted to feel, look at the benefits, what we did well, what we could have improved. And there's also a letter that we send out at the end of the clinic uh, for families. And we wanted to make sure that we we're pitching that at the right level, that it was actually helpful for them. Okay. All right. So we. Um, in terms of looking at changes following engagement, so obviously we wanted, like I said, we wanted it to be actually helpful. 8% of the participants said that they'd agreed or strongly agreed that they actually had a better understanding of their child following the telehealth uh, consultation. Um, they all agreed that they were more confident uh, in, a, in managing their children's needs. Uh, and some of them, almost half of them, actually felt able to talk to their child about what the strengths and challenges were. Um, 40% were less concerned about their child's development following their experience with the service. In terms of technology and timing, obviously it's always interesting, especially if you're, you know, you're in Brisbane, somebody's in a clinic in Mount Isa, and somebody's out in the backyard at Julia Creek. But actually the technology works, which is always fabulous. Um, so 90% of them did engage by a local clinic, but obviously some, it's, it's a massive trip to even get to their local clinic. 
Um, but 100% of people, whether they were in their local clinic or at home, felt they could be seen and heard and we could see and hear them. 80% um, agreed that the observation of their child was very helpful. The 20% that didn't was, is usually similar to any sort of clinic assessment, I think. People that turn up and say, well, actually, this is not what they're normally like, and they weren't always like that on the um, telehealth either. 9% believed that we're, they were able to access a specialist service in a really timely way, and that was one of the big things that came back to us that actually we can see, you know, obviously a psychologist, a social worker, developmental pediatrician, and look at a diagnostics and understanding service really quickly. Um, Experience-wise, 100% of them believe that the appointments were the right length, so new appointments run for about an hour and a half. Uh, so we, have, we tend to see the family, we have a brief break with the team, um, and we discuss what we're going to do from here, and then we bring the family back in and actually talk to them. They felt that that worked really well. 80% um, agreed that they, we, they thought we were really able to engage really well with their child. Uh, and 90% felt that the conversation itself, even over telehealth, was really comfortable. Um, and that we ac they actually felt that we'd got the information that we needed uh, and that we were giving them information that they understood and actually applied. In terms of the letter, 100% uh, of the families believe the letter provider was easy to read. So whenever you send a clinic letter, you don't want to sew what bit to it. You actually want it to mean something. And what we wanted was for them to be able to understand it fully so they can go to the school, they can go wherever, and they feel able to explain what's going on for their child. So it did achieve that. 37.5 uh, believe the letter provided help, you know, in terms of accessing additional supports through NDIS. Uh, and 62, the other 62 and a half, that it was really useful to share. And it should be said, like Georgie was saying before, that actually we do do school meetings at times because we need the clinic to actually wrap around um, the community, sorry, to wrap around this child, not just from a clinic perspective. 90%, uh, this is really good, 90% said that they would use telehealth again in the future, so they'd found it really useful, so that was great. And in terms of what we could do better, um, the main comment was around, well, we don't just want a diagnostic sort of understanding service, we'd love you to do intervention. So that was the main, we didn't have any other um, comments around that, so that was really positive. Okay. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.